Welcome to the historic city of Dublin. And in particular, welcome to the Fitzwilliam Hotel. My name is Donald Fallon and I'm a tour guide and a historian based here in Dublin. Dublin has a remarkable story to tell, from the time of the Vikings in the 9th century, through Georgian Dublin, a revolutionary past, and the city today. It may be a very small place, but it's also a UNESCO World City of Literature. I want to bring you around Dublin on this audio tour, and share some of my favourite places in the city with you. You've made a great decision by staying in the Fitzwilliam. Not only is it a stylish contemporary hotel in the heart of the city, but it's also located in a very historic location, just across the street from St Stephen's Green Park. When you leave the hotel, take a left, and this will bring you in the direction of Grafton Street, the main shopping street of Dublin. We'll be walking up Grafton Street later on. For now though, we're not going quite that far. Cross over to St Stephen's Green, and that will be the first stop of our tour. Just across the way from Grafton Street, you'll find the entrance gates to St Stephen's Green. Popularly known in Dublin as Traitor's Gate, the actual title of this monument is Fusilier's Arch, and it leads us nicely into the park. Fusilier's Arch is named in honour of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, an Irish regiment of the British Army based here in Dublin historically. This gateway commemorates their involvement in a very much forgotten war, the Boer War, fought between 1899 and 1902 in South Africa. I've always joked that if there's a war happening anywhere in the world, the Irish will find their way into it, and they'll find their way into both sides. And the Boer War is a prime example of this. 28,000 Irishmen fought in the Boer War as members of the British Army, but to make matters confusing, around 350 of us fought in the war beside the Boers. An old saying among Irish Republicans that England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Look in the side of the arch, the left-hand side that is, as you're looking at it, and you'll see machine gun fire. This is the end product of the 1916 Easter Rising, a week-long rebellion in the streets of Dublin in 1916, during which this park was occupied by revolutionaries. The Boer War was bloody and brutal, as was the 1916 Easter Rising. The proof of that, however, in the Boer War's context, is inside the archway. What you'll see inscribed here are the names of men who died fighting in South Africa. Walk through Fusilier's Arch and this will bring you into the heart of St Stephen's Green. You'll probably hear the wildlife by now and look in front of you at that beautiful lake. It's an artificial lake and its name, Ardland Lake, gives us some clue of the history of this place. Believe it or not, the park that you're now standing in was opened to the public thanks to the generosity of the Guinness family in 1880. Prior to Guinness, this was a private residence only park and those who lived in the fashionable St Stephen's Green could rent keys and enjoy it at their own leisure. It was Arthur Edward Guinness, or Lord Ardlin as he was known, who financed the opening of the Green in the 1870s. Guinness have always maintained that while Dublin has been good to Guinness, Guinness must be good to Dublin. And this was a prime example of that benevolence. Now that we're in the park, keep to the right. And as you move along, you'll soon come to a statue of Robert Emmett on your left-hand side. Emmett is a famous Irish revolutionary republican, and indeed a famous orator. Should you ever find yourself in Washington DC, take a walk down Embassy Row, or if you're in San Francisco, drop into Golden Gate Park. Why, you might be wondering? Well, in both of those places, you'll find an identical statue to this one. Emmett is a hugely important figure to the Irish, both at home and right across the world. Considered one of the founding fathers of Irish republicanism, he was born here in 1778 
into a prestigious middle-class Protestant family. His father was a highly regarded doctor and surgeon in the city, and Emmett was educated in the finest school in Dublin, White's Academy on Grafton Street. Today, we know it as Bewley's. Having graduated from that school, he entered Trinity College, Dublin. Look at the year he was born, 1778. And now look at the year he died, 1803. Emmett was only a young man of 25 at the time of his execution. Emmett is primarily remembered today for leading the 1803 Rebellion, popularly known today as Emmett's Rebellion. It was a largely abortive affair from start to finish, and less than 100 men took part in it. Emmett was the last man to be hung, drawn and quartered in this part of the world at least. Yet he's primarily remembered not for his failed insurrection, but for his famous last words. On the eve of his execution, Emmett defiantly told the court, let no man write my epitaph until my country takes its place among the free nations of the earth. Then, and only then, let my epitaph be written. Continue on from Robert Emmett, and on your right-hand side, in just a moment, you'll see a statue of Lord Ardlin. Who's he, you might be wondering? Well, he's the man sitting in the chair, in statue form at least. This is Arthur Edward Guinness, A.E. Guinness, the man who gave us the gift of St. Stephen's Green. Guinness wasn't only a brewer, he was a politician, a member of Parliament for many years in the Westminster Parliament in London. This statue records the gratitude of Dubliners towards him for opening St. Stephen's Green. In 1894, the dean of the nearby St. Patrick's Cathedral said that no memorial was ever erected in Dublin which was more deserved than that which the people of Dublin have erected in St. Stephen's Green to celebrate the memory of the noble man to whom Dublin was indebted for the opening and beautifying of that park. Guinness weren't always the most popular family in Dublin. Indeed, Lord Ardlin was a Unionist MP and he encountered much resistance from Irish nationalists in his time. He died in January 1915, at the age of 75, just a year before this park would become a battlefield site in 1916. During his lifetime, he had been a prominent Dublin businessman, a president of the Royal Dublin Society, a student of Eton and Trinity College Dublin, and a unionist political voice in the city. You might notice that the statue isn't facing in towards the park and think that's a little bit unusual. Well, I always add, it is looking towards the Guinness Brewery, and maybe that's more fitting. He's not the only member of the Guinness family with a statue in Dublin. If you make it to St. Patrick's Cathedral while you're here, you'll find Benjamin Lee Guinness sitting outside, the man who restored that church in the 1860s, at his own total expense. If you're wondering who he was, well he was the dad of Lord Ardlin, who you're looking at right now. From this great statue of Arthur Edward Guinness, keep going, and in front of you you should see the Park Keeper's House of St. Stephen's Green. That's our next stop. As you're walking towards the park keeper's house, it seems a good time to point out that this park is well over 25 acres in size. It also seems a good time to point out that there's over 750 trees in the green too. The park keeper's house, the beautiful little lodge, Ardlin's Lodge as it's known, was one of the additions to the park made in the late 1870s. And when this place opened to the public in 1880, the Daily Express newspaper said that the picture is a truly delightful one and cannot fail to impress every visitor to the green. This beautiful little red brick house has been the home to some remarkable people through the ages, but none interest me more than James Kearney, the park keeper of St. Stephen's Green in 1916, the year of the Easter Rising. 
Famously, James Kearney refused to leave the park during the rebellion and went about his work as if nothing was happening. Twice a day, he made his way to the lake of St. Stephen's Green and fed the ducks. How's that for devotion to your job? This park was occupied by anything between 120 and 140 members of the Irish Citizen Army, or the ICA. They were the armed wing of the trade union movement and a republican organisation. Unusual for a lot of reasons, women could join it and move through its ranks, and many women fought here in the 1916 Rising, including Margaret Skinner, a Glasgow-born schoolteacher, and Countess Markovich, who was second in command. That's an unusual name. She married a Polish man along the way, and later went on to become the first woman ever elected to the Westminster Parliament in London. Some of the strangest tactics of the 1916 Rising occurred here in St Stephen's Green. Famously, the rebels dug trenches here, and while trenches were all the rage in 1916, St Stephen's Green is not Gallipoli or the Somme. Surrounded on all sides by buildings, they quickly came under machine gun fire, and this was one of the first positions abandoned by the rebels. Michael Mallon, who was in charge of the rebels here, was executed at Kilmainham Jail by firing squad in May 1916. From the park keeper's house, continue on the walking trail we were on. Don't turn off on the left, but keep going straight ahead. And soon, you should see a monument to James Joyce on the left-hand side. This small little bust commemorates the author of Ulysses, undoubtedly the most celebrated book ever written about the city of Dublin. For something so iconically Dublin, the book wasn't published here. Rather, it was published by Shakespeare and Company in 1922. Why is this bust in the park, you might be wondering? Well, James Joyce has a very strong connection to St Stephen's Green. Today, he is the most celebrated graduate of University College Dublin, now the largest university in the state. But it began life very humbly here at the Green. In addition to the fact he was educated at St Stephen's Green, he put this place on the literary map by including it in Ulysses. He allowed one character, Stephen, to wander through the park, and as he does so, he says, crossing Stephen's, that is, my green. Those words you'll find inscribed below the bust of Joyce here. The bench directly opposite the bust is dedicated to the memory of James Joyce and his beloved father, John. From the James Joyce statue, take a left, and follow the pathway up towards the centre of the park. You'll pass the bandstand on your left-hand side. It's here since 1887 and is a great focal point for culture in the park. It was paid for by a most unlikely source, the Dublin Metropolitan Police. They put it here in 1887 to mark the Golden Jubilee of Queen Victoria and they performed the first ever concert upon it. Back in the 1880s there was a great culture of crowds coming to watch bands play in the Phoenix Park and St Stephen's Green. The military band might be playing in one and the police band in the other. Today. We still get a range of concerts here every summer, so this is still a great focal point of life in the green. From the bandstand, keep going towards the centre of the park. You'll see the large flower bed and the fountains on either side. They're in fine working order since 1880, when the park opens to the public. There's a lot to see in this area of the park, so you might want to pause the audio guide. If you walk around, you might find, among other things, a bust of Thomas Kettle, the famous Irish soldier and poet who died at the Battle of the Somme, and a bust of Countess Markovich. We've mentioned her already today, the first woman ever elected to the Westminster Parliament in London. There's also a wonderfully inclusive garden for the blind here, with signs in braille and plants that can be handled. And just off to the left, you might be able to find the secret theatre, as I call it, the memorial to William Butler Yeats. Take it all in, and when you decide you're good to keep moving, make your way over the tiny little bridge. That's the O'Connell Bridge. And it's going to take us on our way out of the park and back out onto the streets of Dublin. 
So now we've explored some of what St. Stephen's Green, the park itself, has to offer. Come over the little bridge and take a left. You'll walk by the artificial lake, but soon you'll see Fusilier's Arch come into view again. This is the same imposing archway we walked underneath to enter the park. We'll walk through it and take a right. We're going to leave the park now and make our way down along the railings of St. Stephen's Green towards our next few stops. As you're walking along the railings of the park, you should see the turn off for Dawson Street come into view soon. We're not turning here, but it is an interesting street nonetheless, named after Joshua Dawson, a famous property developer here in Dublin. The house he built for himself is now the Mansion House, home of the Lord Mayor of Dublin. Continuing down by St. Stephen's Green, however, you should see the Little Museum of Dublin, the red brick building, two in from the corner with Dawson Street. It's a museum all about 20th century Dublin, and maybe while you're here in the city, you might take the time to drop in and have a look. The Little Museum is something of a civic museum for the city of Dublin, and it tells the story of this city in the 20th century. Everything from the 1916 Rising, to the visit of John F. Kennedy, to the importance of the rock band U2, all those stories are told in the Little Museum today. Its ground floor is constantly changing, with different exhibitions all the time. Permanent features include a room celebrating the Irish Times newspaper, a room dedicated to Alfie Byrne, ten-time Lord Mayor of Dublin, affectionately known as the Shaking Hand of the City, and a room dedicated to U2. While it might be a museum that tells the story of the 20th century, it's located in an 18th century Georgian townhouse. Almost every artefact in this museum was donated by the people of Dublin. In that sense, you could say it's a people's museum. From the Little Museum of Dublin, keep going as we were. And what you're looking out for would be Kildare Street, a turn off on the left-hand side. Kildare Street is hugely important in the day-to-day -day running of Ireland today because it's home to Leinster House, where you'll find Dáil Éireann, or the Irish Parliament. It's also home to the National Museum of Ireland and the National Library of Ireland. We've divided our National Museum into a number of premises here in Dublin. We have the Museum of Decorative Arts and History at Collins Barracks, which is home to, among other things, the excellent Soldiers in Chiefs exhibition. And we have the Natural History Museum at Merrion Square, affectionately known to generations of Dublin youth as the Dead Zoo. The Museum on Kildare Street, however, is the National Museum of Ireland Archaeology, and it's here that you'll find items from Viking Dublin, Medieval Dublin, and even earlier. Be sure to check out the early examples of medieval Celtic metalwork on display here. In addition to that, you'll find items were recovered from Wood Quay, once the heart of Viking Dublin. We know so much about Viking Dublin through the excavations and archaeological digs that happened there in the 1970s and 80s. The Vikings may have been raiders, but they were also traders and the diversity of their experiences here in Ireland is reflected in the museum on Kildare Street. You'll also find very well-preserved bog bodies, perhaps the most unusual artefacts on display in an Irish museum today. These people are thousands of years dead, and their bodies have been perfectly preserved in Irish bogs. Some bog bodies that have been found in Ireland include Cashelman from about 2000 BC. We discovered him in 2011 in County Leash, and it's the oldest fleshed bog body in the world. There's also Clonny Cavan Man, who dates from about 392 to 201 BC, discovered in 2003 in County Mead. While this may be the National Museum of Ireland, that doesn't mean the artefacts are only drawn from Irish history. You'll also find special displays of items from ancient Egypt, Cyprus and the Roman world. Maybe you'd like to drop into the National Museum and have a look around. Remember, you can pause this audio guide at any time.
Neighbouring the National Museum of Ireland is Leinster House, today the home of both houses of the Irish Oireachtas, Dáil Éireann and Shannad Éireann, the Irish Parliament and the Irish Senate. This is a remarkable building, an 18th century mansion, built by Richard Castles, a celebrated architect, and the orders of James Fitzgerald, the Earl of Kildare. It was built between 1745 and 1748, and is considered one of the finest 18th century houses in the city of Dublin. Back then it was more fashionable to live on the north side of Dublin, across the River Liffey, but the Earl of Kildare famously predicted that where he would go, fashion would always follow, and that was proven to be true. In more recent years this was the home of the Royal Dublin Society from 1815 until 1922, and following Irish independence in that year it became the home of the Irish Parliament. Looking inside the gates of Leinster House, you might catch a glimpse of politicians mingling around in the car park today. But for a long, long time, if you looked in these gates, what you would have seen is an imposing statue of Queen Victoria, unveiled on the 17th of February 1908, in the presence of about a thousand troops on parade and a huge number of invited guests. The statue of Victoria, made of bronze, was an impressive 15 foot. Where is she today, you might be wondering? Well, the statue today sits in Sydney, Australia, with a plaque saying that it was presented by the government and people of Ireland in the spirit of goodwill and friendship. On the other side of Leinster House from the National Museum of Ireland, we have the National Library of Ireland, a hugely important resource here in the city, established by the Dublin Science and Art Museum Act of 1877. Be sure to drop into the National Library while you're here and check out their exhibition on William Butler Yeats, the National Poet of Ireland and a winner of the Nobel Prize in 1923. This exhibition on William Butler Yeats tells the story of Yeats the poet and Yeats the man. It looks at his evolution in Irish nationalist circles and his unrequited love for Maud Gonne, a firebrand Irish nationalist of the late 19th and early 20th centuries known as Ireland's Joan of Arc. The National Library of Ireland holds the largest collection of Yeats manuscripts anywhere in the world and in addition to that they have fascinating personal items to tell the story of Yeats the man. Some of these items were donated by George Yeats, his wife, and others came from Michael Yeats, the poet's son. In addition to the items telling the story of William Butler Yeats, the library provides a number of important services, including genealogy services. If you're here in Ireland and you're trying to find out more about your own Irish roots and your own Irish heritage, maybe drop into the National Library of Ireland. Walking through this place, you get a sense of history. It's incredible to think that people like James Joyce and William Butler Yeats himself have sat in this very library. From the National Library of Ireland, keep walking down Kildare Street, but stop outside number one, the building on the corner, and have a little look. This is the home of the Alliance Francais today, but it's also home to one of the most unusual and amusing architectural details in the city. Have a good look in the window columns, and you might make out the stone carvings of monkeys playing billiards. This was once a private gentleman's club, and these little monkeys are a reminder of that time. At the bottom of the street, take a left. You're now on Nassau Street. You might want to explore Nassau Street a little bit while you're here. There's a number of high-quality tourist shops along this stretch, as well as Kilkenny, which specialises in Irish design. You'll notice that on one side of the street there are railings. Well, they're the railings of Trinity College Dublin, and we're going to cross over and enter that college in a little bit. Look out for its Nassau Street entrance on the right-hand side. When you find the entrance of Trinity College Dublin from Nassau Street, walk through it. At first it may not seem like much, this 1960s art block, but when you emerge on the other side, the 18th century campus will come into view. 
Trinity College Dublin is the oldest college not only in Dublin but on the island of Ireland, open for business since the 1590s. This college was established in 1592. It was founded as a very exclusive institution, open only to landowning Anglican men of above a certain wealth, and the royal charter that opened this college was granted by Queen Elizabeth I. As you emerge on the other side of the tunnel, you should see the old library across the way. The old library of Trinity College, dating from the 18th century, is world famous today as the home of the Book of Kells, an illuminated Latin text of the four Gospels dating right back to about the year 800. It is considered one of the most beautiful religious texts in existence today. Maybe you'd like to stop this tour, enter the old library and see the Book of Kells for yourself. The name is a total misnomer. The Book of Kells was not produced in Kells, Dublin or anywhere on the island of Ireland, but most likely comes from the Iona Monastery, which is off the Scottish coast, and was taken from there as a result of frequent Viking raids upon that monastery about the year 800. Also in the old library is the Brian Baru Harp, the oldest harp on the island of Ireland, from which the national emblem of our state and the Guinness corporate logo are both taken. From the old library, make your way into the main square of Trinity College Dublin, what's known as Parliament Square. It's just to the left. Parliament Square is home to the Examinations Hall and the Chapel of Trinity College. Identical in every little external feature, but very different internally. They were both designed by a brilliant English architect named Sir William Chambers, a man who never set foot in this country. You'll also see the Great Bell Tower, there since 1854. The four figures around it, medicine, science, divinity and law. Famous graduates of Trinity College Dublin include Oscar Wilde, Jonathan Swift, who gave the world Gulliver's Travels, Bram Stoker, who gave us Dracula, and the Nobel winner and the French resistance fighter of World War II, Samuel Beckett. Others that passed through the college include Isaac Newton and Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese, the two female presidents of Ireland so far. One of the figures commemorated with a monument in Trinity College is George Salmon. You might see him in the main square. He's the marble man in the corner. Often ridiculed, it said that Salmon remarked that women would enter Trinity College over his dead body. Today we're living in his nightmare version of the future. Trinity College has a female majority. From the square, exit Trinity College Dublin and go out through the main entrance, the front entrance, which is at the top of the square. As you emerge at the front gates of Trinity College Dublin, you're looking out onto College Green, a tree-sided plaza in the middle of everything. College Green has been at the heart of Irish history for centuries now, and just across the street from Trinity College Dublin, you'll make out the old Irish Parliament, today the Bank of Ireland. The building is most unusual for a couple of reasons. Firstly, notice that it has no windows. Just why has always been hotly debated. The most popular theory in Dublin, in the folklore of the city at least, remains 19th century window tax, known across the world as daylight robbery. That building was the world's first dual-chambered purpose-built parliament, and its foundation stone was laid in 1729. If you look in the front of the building, you might be able to make out the lion and the unicorn, the royal coat of arms. The lion represents England and the unicorn Scotland. Sadly, the old Irish Parliament is remembered today for all of the wrong reasons. In the year 1800, it famously voted for its own abolition, passing what was called the Act of Union. This was done largely out of fear and corruption, following in the aftermath of a failed revolution in Ireland in 1798. The building was sold in 1803 to the Bank of Ireland, and they have owned it ever since. 
A wise man in the 18th century once joked that the Parliament was half a stone's throw from the college and half a world from any knowledge. On our left and our right, as we stand outside Trinity College Dublin, you'll find monuments of famous graduates of the college. One monument remembers Edmund Burke, the political theorist, sometimes considered to be the father figure of modern conservative political thinking, while the other statue remembers Oliver Goldsmith, a poet, a playwright and a Trinity College graduate too. From Trinity College Dublin, we're going to take a left, and this will bring us back up Grafton Street, the main shopping street of Dublin. We're on our way back now towards the hotel. It's time now to walk up Grafton Street, which will bring us back to where we began at St Stephen's Green. This is one of the two principal shopping streets that we have here in Dublin, the other being Henry Street on the north side of the river. Grafton Street connects College Green on one side with St Stephen's Green on the other. You might be wondering about the name. Well, Grafton Street is named after Henry Fitzroy, who was the first Duke of Grafton. He also happened to be the illegitimate son of Charles II, the British monarch. Very few people can boast of living on Grafton Street, but one person who can is the Provost of Trinity College Dublin. And over the high walls, you might be able to make out his home. As you walk up Grafton Street, take it all in. You might want to turn off on the left to Duke Street. Duke Street is home to the Bailey Pub, once a popular institution with the literati of Dublin. Brendan Behan, Flann O'Brien and many other Irish writers of renown were often to be found in the Bailey. John Ryan, once the owner of the pub, had the good sense to save the door of number 7 Eccles Street, which was the home of Leopold Bloom and Ulysses. For many years it was on display in the pub, today it's at home in the James Joyce Centre on the north side of Dublin. While the door of James Joyce may not be there anymore, the Bailey still remains a great spot to have a pint. Continuing up Grafton Street and Bewley's Oriental Cafe should come into view on the right-hand side. This is a Dublin institution, here since the 1920s, 1927 to be exact, and the great poet William Butler Yeats was once a frequent visitor. Sadly, the cafe is currently closed for restoration. My favourite thing about Bewley's though is its theatre, and it's still going strong. If you follow the laneway beside Bewley's, you'll come to Paris Court Shopping Centre, an 18th century townhouse transformed in recent times. Many small boutiques and Irish designers are to be found there, and so too is Bewley's Theatre. It will be back open for business on Grafton Street soon. Paris Court is definitely worth visiting while you're here. For now though, we're back in the hustle and bustle of Grafton Street, and continue on past Bewley's, and Harry Street will soon come into view on the right-hand side. Harry Street is home to two of my favourite things in Dublin. Firstly, the statue of Phil Linnett. Phil Linnett was the front man of the famous Irish rock band Tin Lizzy. They're remembered for having such hits as The Boys Are Back in Town, Whiskey in the Jar and Jailbreak. Here he is, clutching his beloved guitar. Opposite the statue is MacDade's, a Dublin institution and a popular watering hole with the literati of the city historically, a little bit like the Duke where we were earlier on. Truly this area is home to some of the most interesting pubs in Dublin. In fact, not far from where we're standing is Grogan's on St William Street. It was said in the 1950s and the 1960s that the riders of Dublin split their time pretty evenly between MacDade's and Grogan's. It's well worth going to check out St William Street while you're here. It's home to vintage shops, restaurants, bars, and it's only a stone's throw from where we're now standing. There really is a lot to see in this area. Of course, there are so many ways you can spend your time in this area of Dublin, and hopefully you've got a sense of that from the podcast. For now though, I want to get you back to the hotel, so continue up Grafton Street, and at the top of the street, Fusilier's Arch should come into view. You'll remember that from earlier on. It's the imposing entrance gates to St Stephen's Green. 
you'll see the shopping centre on the right-hand side. And going past Stephen's Green Shopping Centre, you're only a stone's throw from the Fitzwilliam Hotel. Tony, Patrick and the whole team in the lobby are waiting there to look after you. And you can always enjoy a pint of Guinness in the Inn on the Green Bar. Or maybe some food in Kevin Thornton's or the Citron Restaurant. There's plenty of options there for every taste. I hope this podcast has opened your eyes to the history and culture of this little area of Dublin. There's a lot more to see and do in this great city. Make the most of your time here and enjoy your stay at the Fitzwilliam Hotel.